Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Mayor Royce. Ow! Much better. Yeah, I was going to say also, uh, he's been acting with Teddy Wilson in at least three films, so I got to get... Listen, pay, pay and place, Julia. That's all I'm saying. All right, I'm just yeah. bringing him in. I'm just bringing him in. I think between all of us, we'll get his career kind of covered. Yeah, we know that. Yeah, y'all. Wow. Hello. Legend. What's going on? This What's happening? Colonel Boy. Taylor, son. What? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Great. This is great. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to another episode of Quest Love Supreme. Supreme team's in the house. All of us here. And, and unpaid bill. Yeah. How are you doing? How are you? Mayor Royce in the building. I'm ready to go. <laughs> for, for each of us in this room, we're going to have like our our memories of our guest today. Um, Fontigolo, you cool? Yeah, man. Listen, I'm cool as I could be look, with look, a legend in the room. I know. Let's <laughs> Steve, I got Sugar so Steve, many questions. You cool? Here, good to see everybody. Nice to see you, sir. How are yes. you? How are you? And uh, Laia is uh, also with us. I am overjoyed. Overjoyed. Yeah. This overjoyed. Is this, this we is, already met, Laia. Yeah. Yes, we, we did. This is special. Old friends. Now you got your Hillman on. No, I see Hillman on. <laughs> Much <laughs> respect, yeah. sir. Yes, sir. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Represent. <laughs> Okay, so I'll say that um, you know our our guest today, uh, beyond super legend. I mean, I personally grew up watching his entire canon, even if I didn't know I was watching him. But he's literally been practically almost in every movie uh, that I was allowed to watch, which speaks highly of his 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 choice of film. Uh, this man has sixty years of of acting. Uh, under his belt on all mediums, movies, televisions, plays. Um, 
I mean, if I name them all, we'll be here forever. I mean, Raising the Sun, Julia, Room 222, Mod Squad, The White Shadow. Cooley High, son. Yeah, Cooley High, Peyton Place. Oh, uh, homework. I'm a hero ain't no, nothing but a sandwich. I know. Everyone, but all my AB, all the black ABC after school specials. The ABC specials? Yes. Yeah, yeah, JD's I'm Revenge, good. the River Niger, uh, you know, a different a world. Nigga. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I see it had one G and one G. That's the River Niger, right? Exactly. You know that, right? I know. I heard Jamie Foxx say that one day. It just made me laugh. I'm sorry. Yeah, like, uh-huh. <laughs> of course, our, our white contingency definitely knows him from uh, The Wire. You know, currently riding high now on his Emmy uh, nomination of uh, How to Get Away with Murder. Currently, Giving us a, a twofer in Fargo on mm-hmm. FX. Do- Doctor, yes, Doctor, Doctor Senator. Doctor Senator. His birth yeah. name, Doctor Senator. I love. I love. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not to be outdone in in the historical telling of of Ma Rainey's uh, illustrious career as a as a pioneer in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Questlove Supreme, the one and only Glenn Terman. Yes. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction, my brother. You look too Thank cool, you. man. When I grow up, I won't be like you. Look how kickback you are. I, <laughs> I'm just, you know, this, you know, I'm just chilling, just doing re- what you relaxing do. with friends. I know, yeah, I, I know. It, yeah, I know. We usually do this chronological thing, but it'll it would be forever. So I think this is going to be more rapid fire. <laughs> so I will go first. You know, I'm obsessed with. A particular period. I know that you're a Harlem knight. Uh, correct. You were born in Harlem. Correct. Um, you know, and I've heard a lot from uh, Nina Simone, James Baldwin, but I never got to hear any personal tales of the great Lorraine Huntsbury. And um, I know that she cast you at, at a young age in Raising in the Sun. So, and I think the way she cast you was very casual. It wasn't like you had, you know, these goals to be an actor. Can you just explain to me, like, what was it like in that environment growing up with those those giants as, as, as a young person looking at them? Well, you know, I was born in Harlem, but raised in Greenwich Village. So my mother, a single parent, moved from Harlem, she and I, to a cold water flat, six what they used to call a cold water flat in Greenwich Village mm-hmm. in the 50s. And uh, that meant that the apartments were, were literally that. There was no hot water, and you had to walk up five flights or six flights of stairs, and uh, you had to boil your water, you know. And, mm-hmm. the t- and that was sort of the norm of apartment styles in the village at that time. And the p- people who were predominantly uh, living in these these conditions were artists. Uh, James Baldwin, Lorraine Hansberry, Smith Oliver, uh, Nina Simone, and all of these people were my mother's contemporaries. Mm-hmm. And there were few, just a handful of Blacks in the village at that time, and she was a part of this, this bohemian sort of clique of, of intellectuals, you know? So one day, Lorraine, uh, my mother said, uh, uh, you know, my friend, Miss Hansberry, 
she's written a play. There's a part for a little boy in it. And she was wondering if you might be interested in an auditioning for the part. But I didn't know what an audition was. I had no idea. Right. And uh, my mother <laughs> said, well, yeah, if, if you get this part, it's going to be many Saturdays. So I said, well, I don't know. She said, well, let's study the, the part and we'll go and, and, and meet them uh, on this particular date, which I did. And then there were a whole bunch of other little kids, black boys, in the hallway when we got to this office up in Midtown. And uh, I didn't know what they were there for. I didn't know that they were there competing for the same role that I was competing for. I, I thought the role was mine. So I couldn't figure out what all these other little knuckleheads was doing there. Because <laughs> my role, I read the play, there's only one little boy in the play, that's me. So what y'all doing here, you know? So right. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned to find out what an audition was that they were all we were all there for the same role. But I got the role. And uh, so there I was in show business. That's that's a hell of an entry. Yeah. Um, do you do you have just personal memories of speaking with her or interacting with her or Well, what it was, yes, she she and I I, you know, there were a lot of games that you played in the streets in those days. You didn't have to be in the house all the time when I grew up, you know. Mm-hmm. There were games that you would play, you, would, you know, stick ball. Stick ball you know, and yeah, skelly. Play stick ball, skelzies. <laughs> well, you know, skelzies, yeah. Yeah, that was my game, so skelzies and so on and so forth. And Miss Hansberry had a collie dog, and 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 she herself was beautiful. She was really pretty. Uh-huh. And what was to happen was, because we were on the ground playing skullsies, you know, we were thumping the, the bottle caps or whatever, we were checking yeah. whatever it was was your piece. You know, we spent a lot of time down low on the ground as kids. But all of a sudden, this dog would walk through our game, you know, and then this beautiful set of legs would walk through. Mm. the game and without looking up i I would find myself saying hello miss hands (laughs) 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 and she'd say hello glenn you know tell your mother this or tell your mother that or blah 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 so she was very part of the neighborhood you know we were it was a neighborhood and we were all in this neighborhood so you know sometimes i say i'll carry that for you i'll carry those groceries for you and carry them home and she Give me a quarter and so on and so forth, you know. Everyone fighting to get her attention. I see. Wait, I, I do have a question for you. You mentioned growing up in Harlem. Do you have any memories whatsoever of uh, the Harlem Cultural Festival that went on? It was, it was a, it was a concert thrown by a gentleman named Tony Lawrence, uh, and this was like 1969. It was like Nina Simone, yeah. Stevie Wonder, yeah. Like it was all the summer of 1969. Do you have any memories of? I don't. I really don't. I came to California in '68. I left really? New York, and uh, I've been in California living since 1968. So that that particular event, I'm not necessarily familiar with. Um, what prompted the move to California? I came to do a play at a uh, at a theater company called the Inner City Cultural Center. The Inner City Cultural Center was uh, over on Pico and and uh, New Hampshire, mm. uh, East East LA. Okay. And it was run by a man by the name of C. Bernard Jackson, and uh, it was a 
wonderful theater company. It still has, there's still remnants of it now, of which I'm still a part of. As a matter of fact, we've got a Zoom thing that we're getting ready to do pretty soon. But I came to do a play there uh, called Slow Dance on the Killing Ground, which, which had been done in Broadway in New York with Clarence Williams III, and I was going to do the West Coast uh, version of it. And uh, that brought me here by a woman who was a high school teacher of mine at the High School of Performing Arts, which I attended. She brought me out here to do that play. So her name was Burnett Carroll, and she was one of the first black female directors on Broadway, having directed okay. a play called Your Arms Are Too Short to Box With God. To Box With God, yes. okay. Mm-hmm. Before your turn in Raising in the Sun, did you have aspirations to to get in the business or to be an actor? Or was it just like something that worked out and you're like, well, I want to try it again? Like, what was... Yeah, no, I had no aspiration at all. I, you know, I, I did this thing. My mama told me about it. She said we get to travel, so which we did. You know, I was uh, got to go to Chicago and Philly and uh, New Hampshire with the play touring before we came into New York. Of course, I got to meet all these wonderful people, Sidney Poitier, and work with them, Ruby D, and uh, Ivan Dixon and Lou Gossett, you know, and all mm-hmm. these people that were fantastic. But And then see some people that I knew from the movies, like Sammy Davis Jr. or uh, Eartha Kitt or, you know, uh, beautiful Dorothy Dandridge, you know. Mm-hmm. So wow. I, I got to meet all these people that my mother and her, my aunties and everybody was like saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know. Right. Uh, but for me, it wasn't, I was just a kid, so I, it was it was a big deal, but it wasn't a big deal, you know what I'm saying? Kids, kids don't really pay a lot of attention to that. Right. So when it's so when it's over, then suddenly, is it, is it a feeling of emptiness? Like, well, when's the next one, or how can I do this? No, I, I kept, I, I, I quit the play. I quit the play after a year being in it. Uh, Sidney Poitier left. I left soon after just to get back to being a regular kid, you know, and going to my regular high school because I was going at that time. They took me out of my regular school and put me in a children's school, professional school, you know, and I I didn't like it. You know, all my thug buddies was going to a different school. (laughs) Right. So I was ready for thuggery 101, you know, and I wasn't going to get to that Mace professional children's school, you know. So <laughs> what made what made you stay that long? I'm curious because you mentioned that you weren't like phased by the stars or anything else, but you stayed long. Well, it was fun. I, I did this. I, you know, I was with them. But also, you know, like I said, we, we needed the money, you know. Oh, yeah. My mother was a single parent. She wasn't working at the time. You know, and this money came in handy to turn the lights back on, you know. So, uh, uh, you know, it was a practical factor involved as well. And once we got on our feet, you know, mom said it was okay, you could leave. We're cool. And uh, I split. Wow. You mentioned. But I I kept getting parts. I kept getting parts while I was in junior high school because I had such notoriety as a result of being this kid in a Broadway play. So anytime there was a little black kid, they kept putting me, I kept getting in these different shows, a lot of different television shows, you know, and a lot of different uh, stage plays with Leroy Jones, who was Mari Baraka. So I worked with him with creating some of his early works. I, I worked with uh, James, James uh, Kahn, Jimmy Kahn and Robert Redford, 
in, in a TV series, you know, a TV uh, special. They were live. It was live television then. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I kept getting in these things. And uh, then uh, it came time to go to high school. And I had a teacher, a woodshop teacher, black woodshop teacher who said, Terman, what, what school are you going to go to? What high school are you going to? I said, I'm going to high school of aviation and design. I'm going to become an aviation engineer. Mm-hmm. He said, Terman, you are a chronic truant. You haven't <laughs> been to a math class since in the last three semesters. How do you, don't you have to take a test for aviation and uh, aviation and design and you don't know anything about math. You know, that's, it's all math. I said, that's okay. I'm going to take the test and I'll pass it. He said, well, look, there's a school called the High School of Performing Arts. It's now called LaGuardia. Mm. Right. And uh, I said, uh, he said, uh, why don't you audition for that school? They do acting and stuff like that. The art. I said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not doing that. I'm going to aviation and design, you know. And he said, they said, he said, well, do this. Take the test and the audition. Well, I failed the test like he knew I would. And I passed the audition. <laughs> what, what, was, what was the school like back in, I'm, I'm assuming this is the mid-60s or late 60s? Yeah, early 60s. Early 60s. Yeah, like, I, like I've attended a performing arts school, but in the late 80s or 90s. Um, but what was the curriculum like back then? Like, was it diverse? LaGuardia is now on, I think, 59th Street or something like that. Yeah. And 9th or 10th Avenue. Mm-hmm. But then Performing Arts, which the movie Fame was made about. Yeah. And actually, that was my graduating class that they made that movie about. What? Yeah. And uh, and that, that school was on 46th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. So it was right in the heart of Broadway. So there I was again in the middle of Broadway, you know, where I had been as a, as a, as a mm-hmm. kid all those, all that time. And I ended up becoming top of the class. I got, I got an A for the first time ever in school. I got all these great marks and graduated vice president of this, my senior class and won all the awards and all that. And I, so finally I said, when I got an A that first semester, I came home and I said, Ma, look, I, I got an A. And she said, yeah, well, I've been trying to tell you, you know. <laughs> that, that, you need to go. So she wanted it for you even more than you wanted it, myself. Wanted it for yourself, so, right. You know, but I was always a ham, you know. I'm always a kid. You know, you got a cousin, or if it, maybe it's you, you know, that you got a kid that on the holidays or the party, the, the, the house party or whatever, when you're a kid, you know, your folks would call you, come on out and do sing a song. Come on out and dance. Come on out and do this. Come on out and <laughs> I was always that kid, you know. So, right. So, you mentioned you went your, since fame was based off of your class. Were there some peers that came out with you? Remember, there was a black kid in that movie, Fame, Leroy. Yes, Gene of Anthony course. Ray. Leroy, yes, yes, indeed. Well, that was Ben Vereen. <gasps> Shut up. Yes, yes. So Gene, so ben, ben Vereen was a troubled, uh, <laughs> a troubled child that was talented <laughs> and still. We're, we're all troubled children that were talented. <laughs> word, so, word. But Ben and I are close to this day. We've been buddies ever since. We've been roommates and the whole thing. As a matter of fact, we're neighbors uh-huh. now. What's crazy is we interviewed wow. 
the woman, the woman who taught him how to dance, her grandson became like a legendary rapper because oh. but she used to dance in the cotton club. It's oh. like a whole circle. Remember y'all prodigy? Yeah, oh, prodigy. Yeah. Yeah. Prodigy yeah, taught Benverine how to, yeah. I was all right, but that's just oh. wild. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, sure. That's dope. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna push it up a little bit because Push. again, your your career sprawls decades and you know, we gotta cover everything. And then I'm I'm gonna let y'all take it over after I do this question because I know y'all got questions too. But I just wanna say that pro in retrospect, I guess uh Preach was was maybe the first black nerd I've ever seen <laughs> on media screen so maybe because the thing is is that when all my friends watch Cooley High they all related to Cochise <laughs> and for me she goes <laughs> yeah I, but for I, me, know, I know what he's I related to Preach <laughs> you know I mean I didn't see myself as a nerd back then but I mean obviously I was more Preach than I was you host Cochise. a podcast I think you no man I'm fucked out done like a successful yeah, band it, leader. It was just no, it was it was important. It was important for me to see that even though I guess in real time I didn't see that as a seed being planted, but I definitely knew that watching that character, um, and kind of the, the, the sheepish way that he didn't want people to know that he was that smart, like especially when you have to survive in the area that you grow up. You know, you don't want people to think that you're weak or anything, so you try and over accommodate whatever. But can you just talk about like just working with Michael Schultz and that whole like is Cooley High as iconic to you as it is to us, or are you are you tired of everyone like making a big <laughs> deal over? No, actually, uh it is one of my favorite movies, even if I wasn't in it. Mm. The fact that I am in it makes it one of my favorite movies that I've been in. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. It's a okay. it's a terrific movie, and it because it says it talks about just what and exposes just what you're talking about a side of us that very few saw, especially at the time when exploitation movies were being made, because all this all the characters were pimps or players or tough guys or gangsters and so on and so forth. So all of a sudden, here you are in the neighborhood, and the gangsters are not the star of the movie, a nerd is the star of the movie, you know? It w gave us a chance to expose that, uh, some of your concerns, you know, how do I stay smart and stay uh, cool? So, <laughs> you know, uh, so he was indeed a, a cool nerd, you know, and that's, that's, what we, that's what he turned out to be. But at the same time, it was interesting that that our culture, which was my culture, we used to hit you on the back of the buses, you know, jump the turnstiles, uh, ditch class. I already told you I ditched class. I hardly ever went to the class, you know. And so all of those, and spend time <laughs> at the zoo while waiting, you know, to, to, for school to be over so we can go back and get our books and do whatever. Right. All of that was my culture, you know. And uh, we had never seen that on mm -hmm. the screen before. Now, the fact that 45 years later, there are still four decades of of people, youngsters who grow up watching that movie. That surprises me, you know, because I still have you know young teenagers will come up and say, "Oh, you preach," you know. I say, "Well, 
you you watch Cooley High, yeah, man, yeah, yeah, you know. So that's that that surprised me. So no, I did not, and we did not expect it to be the iconic film that it turned out to be. But a lot of that has to do with Michael Schultz and Steve Krantz, who was the producer. Michael Schultz, of course, the director, and of course uh, Eric Monte, who uh, wrote the piece. They did something that was brilliant. There's a star. There's a star in the movie that no one notices. Of course, there's myself and there's Lawrence Hilton Jacobs and Garrett Morris and Stephen Williams and and uh, the people uh, who were acting in the movie. But there's also a, mu- a music score that you couldn't pay for today. Before the, the big chill, Motown, greatest Motown score ever. Yeah. Motown, yeah. I was about it's to say before the big Motown. chill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah before a, the big chill, Coley High was. Is a, music is a star of the, of the movie. You know, yeah. it's one of the stars, you know. And uh, you couldn't you couldn't buy that now for a, mo- a motion picture, you know. Too expensive. Mm. I was watching an interview you did. It was some years back. And you were talking about that period in your career where, you know, the the industry in kind of Hollywood, they were calling it black exploitation. But mm. I always admired what you said. <laughs> you said, you know, to y'all, it was black exploitation. To me, it was just work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we was we were just working, you know. And so I was um, you know, curious just to know, like, uh, just with all your, you know, career, all your years in the game, you know, how has your view on those movies changed? You know, like, you know, do you still just see it as just work, or do you think that there were some larger implications uh around those kind of films? No, I I, I see it as work, you know, uh exploitation. Yeah, you could look at it like that, you know, but a lot of good came out of it. Uh, a, a lot of progress came out of it, you know, and it fed families, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, it gave us an opportunity to work. The only problem was that it most of the time it was a, a one-sided uh, view of who we were as a people. When those things opened up, those views opened up, and especially now I'm so proud of what what the young people you guys are doing now in terms of bringing forth projects that uh, show more dimensions of our experience and who we are. You know, that's what our fight was about back then. You know, uh, that's what we went yeah. to the head office about. That's what we lost jobs about. That's how we, you know, got fired by speaking up about, you know, this character doesn't have a backstory or this character is one dimensional. Why doesn't this happen? Why does this woman have to do this or bear that? You know, so those were the battles that we we were facing. But and to see what you guys are doing now with with your opportunities in terms of taking advantage of the changing tide uh, is is heartwarming for me. You know, because uh, it's been a long haul. Yeah, well, we wouldn't be there without y'all. I was about to say, yeah. Yeah, Thank you. How how difficult is that particular Hollywood shuffle where you kind of have to wrestle between your dignity and a good paycheck? Um, because there's there's one particular film that isn't often listed in your your uh, credits that I saw. Now, in, in 2000, I did a film with Spike Lee called Bamboozled about menstrual mm. culture. Mm. And when Spike was first pitching us this film, the first thing he did was he came to our studio 
And he was like, all right, I need three hours. I'm going to show you this movie. And he puts in uh, this movie from 77 called Minstrel Man. And basically, like Spike Lee just gave us a crash course on the entire history of minstrel entertainment. And, um, you know, the thing was Spike was like, this movie's been banned. You can't, you can't see it nowhere. No, Like, he had to pull strings to get this from, like, you know, who, whatever company had or whoever, like, one of the producers was. But, yeah, I've watched that film, like, three times. And even now, then when I did the film, you know, I thought, okay, well, Spike's saying this is a satire. But, you know, I was kind of in that naive place where I thought, like, okay, you know, we're we're in a post-racial part of you know where it's 2000 there's a new leaf and da 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 and sure enough uh we've eased back into probably even worse a a what i call neo-minstrelsy but at the time what made you want to do such a daring film about uh the history of menstrual entertainment and why was it not uh exposed even on your on your wikipedia page it's not even Mm -hmm. mentioned uh, it's one of it's it's one of my favorite pieces, uh, Minstrel Man. It was daring. It was a revolutionary film, and it paid homage to we as performers. Somebody had to bite the bullets, and these these performers bit the bullet. You know, I met Step and Fetch It, Mr. Perry, when I was doing Cooley High. You're you're all mm-hmm. familiar with the Step and Fetch It? Mm-hmm. Yes, oh, yeah, no Step and Fetch It, yeah. Who? did more in terms of really putting an image out there that really hurt us as a, as a, as a people. But at the same time, the reason it hurt us is because he was so brilliant at what it was that he was doing. His performance capabilities were astounding, just like W.C. Fields, just, just like, uh, um, uh, you know, any of those great um, yeah, Mantan comedians, comedians of those of that time, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Buster Keaton, all those guys. But he w- took it on himself to give you an interpretation of what was thought about us. In other words, he took the he took the narrative of somebody, some other cultures describing us. And though right. it wasn't true, he envisualized it. It was detrimental, but it was brilliant. It was really yeah. brilliant, so much so that it, it it harnessed an entire race of people. And for that, he became the highest one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So there's that double-edged sword of as a performer, as an artist, what do we do? What are we about and what do we do and how do we select what we do? So I saw this film as a film that tried to explain that. What do we do? We're brilliant people. How do we make what we have work for Mm -hmm. us? And what's too much? You know, when do we stop? When do we stop? When do we not say, okay? When do we say that's enough? And we still have it to this day. It's not like it's gone away. You think it was different when it was only like one or two of us? And now that that's changed a little, maybe that 
space has changed because when it's only one of us representing everybody, then of course we're like, folk. no, no, there was always a lot. That's why you should see this film instrument. Okay. Okay. I do. I wrote it down. I am. Well, if I can, where can I, where can I see? Where can I yeah. see? Google it. I believe it's still on YouTube. It might be on YouTube. Okay. You know, it's funny. It's weird you said that because um, maybe like four years ago, I went on a deep dive about the whole menstrual culture, and someone had a a, a different perspective of Step and Fetch It, in which he said that um, the the one weapon that black people could use against racism and white supremacy at that time was was humor. And so he saw Step and Fetch It less as like a, you know, if people were saying like, well, he's not a credit to his race or a sellout, but more on the terms of he discovered a way to disarm uh, powerful white people at the time mm-hmm. using humor. Because on the other hand, Steppen would also take his money and start funding like these black Shakespearean plays. Like he would use his his money right. that he made for movies, and then really start a revolution by you know <laughs> Paul Robinson stuff and and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And so you know it's 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 kind of a double edged sword. Where I guess now you could just say that's just what we call code switching. Yeah. Whereas you know Steppen was the yeah. or, the original code switcher. But um, yeah, I wish, you know, I kind of wish that that film could come out of its retirement. I mean, at the time, was it at the time, at the time, were you shocked that, well, I mean, kind of, I I assume that it wasn't well received. So it was thrown like sort of underground. It was was well received. That was the problem. (laughs) It was too well received. Well received for the wrong reasons. But for the wrong reasons. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it, it was. You know, it, it was uh, all of a sudden people got a conscience about what they thought we should be showing, you know. And, I see. Uh, it, it suffered the fate that it suffered, you know, and I'm very sorry that it did. I'm very sorry that it did. Well, so, yeah, I, I still recommend people see it, you know, because it really, especially, uh, I remember one part in which, in the very beginning of the film, where they explain that, you know, when African-American actors wanted to act, they had to act like the white people imitating black people. Right. And then that's when I realized how meta that was that, Oh, that, that was okay. So that was the whole point of menstrual entertainment that we were imitating those who were yeah imitating those so, imitating it, us, imitating us and, and terrorizing us. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fonsigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. 
Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey, can you settle something? Is it true that I heard that you were supposed to be the original Han Solo in Star right? Wars? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what happened? So when you, <laughs> so who does who does Han Solo have a love affair with? Leia. Already, oh, oh, Leia. Leia. There you go. <laughs> Leia. Shows All day, nigga. Okay. Okay. So yeah. what happened? <laughs> So what happened? That's yeah, all you had to say. They couldn't have you kissing on a white woman. Well, what's Frank? Oh, I know George Lucas was like, I'm just trying to live out my fantasies. And this happened to him with Melanie Yeah, exactly. You see that, man? Yeah. But he says it. He says that's what it, the problem was. He says that that was, that was what he didn't want to open the canopies in that, that area. And so that's what stopped him from going uh, uh, down that path. You know, and I asked him. I finally, I asked. I had a chance to. I ran into him at uh, at, at uh, Sam Jackson's party a couple of years ago, and he and his wife were there. And I, I hadn't seen him since that day. You know, those times. And uh, so I stepped up to him and I asked him. I said, "Man, I read that you were thinking about me for Hot Solo." He says, "Yeah, that's right." <laughs> I said, "And you didn't do it because?" He says, "Yeah, I didn't want to go down that road." I said, I understand. I understand. Wow. I love that. Didn't do it because yeah, fill in the blank. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I ain't want that smoke in 82. I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> yeah. but, but Harrison Ford owes me some money because yeah. he, 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 he cleaned up on that on, on, on that Star Wars thing. I sure would like to get my, my percentage of, of some of that dough he created. Yeah, because <laughs> that was before Indiana Jones. No, right? It's all fair. It's all fair. It's all good. <laughs> No problems. I got no regrets. Uh, one of your films I want to ask you about that is like a classic in hip hop. And I don't even know if you're aware. You may be. But J.D.'s Revenge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Man, J.D.'s Revenge. I didn't see the movie. I didn't see it until, I mean, maybe around like year like 2000 or so. Uh, around I, I bought the DVD. But it was sampled in uh, a Ghostface Killer Wu-Tang Clan uh, album. And so when we figured out that's what it was like a lot of me and a lot of my homies a lot of hip-hop cats we ended up getting that movie and watching it and um i, I actually still have it on dvd right now <laughs> but um <laughs> what do you remember uh if anything snoop's favorite movie <laughs> really yeah 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 no it's a classic that's a tour bus classic that's a classic yeah <laughs> yeah that's, Snoop, that's yeah. Snoop's favorite movie yeah those that period of your career um what do you remember about shooting like movies like that, like you know JD's Revenge, uh, these movies that were you know kind of low budget and but they were entertaining. I mean, you know uh, JD's Revenge and also uh, Penitentiary Two, which mm. is a movie I had no business Yo. seeing as like a six year old. But <laughs> I was afraid to ask about Penitentiary Two. Too sweet, too sweet. <laughs> like, come on, bro. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> what was it like? Because that movie was insane, and like, but what was it? What was it like working on it? It was insane working on it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. First of all, you know, we shot it in New Orleans. You know. Oh. Oh wow. That was, that was the first time I had been to New Orleans. Oh. And you know, I'm shooting a movie where, as a character, I've got to be possessed. You know, so I'm coming mm -hmm. in and out of these possessions. And if you know anything about New Orleans, that's real down there. Mm -hmm. you know? Yes, indeed. That's, that's the way that goes down there. And being a young actor at the time, I was, you know, as I still am, but especially back then, I was all about going for the reality of things, you know, and going mm -hmm. as deep as I had to go to deliver, you know, and uh, without any filters, you know. So I... Uh, Went on quite a on quite a ride down there, you know, and doing that. I'll never forget. <laughs> How much of a ride? You can act like I'm not here. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> quite one. It was it was a hell of a ride. It was you know because uh, the city itself was was such a character in the film. You know, they're gargoyles and all the God. architecture. You know, so there's always something looking at you. You know, mm -hmm. and. Uh, it was a hell of it was a hell of a uh, of an experience. Hey, you know of of the what I call the 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 seventy squad of young black actors who later in the eighties sort of elevated themselves to directors and producers. I know that um it was it was a big deal when like uh, Kevin Hooks sort of like left the white shadow and became a director. Um, I know that in 1983, you directed, like, Dynasty was a religion 
in my grandmother's household, mm-hmm. like all my aunts. Well, and everyone watch Falcon Dynasty. Christ. All yeah, the, yeah, Falcon Christ, right? <laughs> and Dallas. Right. And Dallas. Dallas. Yeah. Come on now. So, <laughs> now you're in. <laughs> how, how, um, was that your first foray into directing? Uh, when, motion, uh, television. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. So what, what prompted, uh, that particular leap as far as you getting into directing? Showbiz is, uh, is a, interesting multi-headed uh, beast. The movie we spoke about, Minstrel Man, mm-hmm. ran into all sort of stumbling blocks, as as you noted, Quest. Right. But one of the one of the wonderful things that came out of it was uh, a relationship that I formed with uh, the authors of that piece, the Shapiros, uh, Richard and Esther Shapiro. Wonderful, wonderful, talented, talented people. They wrote Minstrel Man, and they cast me in Minstrel Man. And during our course of our knowing one another, they developed um, Dynasty. Oh. Oh. Wow. 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 Minstrel Man is Dynasty. Wow. Who are these? And then talking with the conversation, Glenn, what's next on your agenda? What do you you see yourself? I said, I see myself directing. I had been directing some plays at the Inner City Cultural Center that I spoke of earlier. And they said, really? I said, yeah. You know, she said, well, we're putting in a program for directors. We want more minority directors to come and be a part of this. I said, count me in. And so I shadowed one of the directors for months and months and months. And finally, they gave me my shot. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because most more more people don't talk about all these programs that are available, especially for minorities that are mm-hmm. able to do that. It's a lot of networks and, and places that do that. I'm just as yeah. people are listening to us. I want you to know you should look into that because that's still yeah, something sure. yeah, really popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glenn, do you still audition? No, ma'am. So when's the last time you did? Talk I'm just, heavy. I'm just Talk wait, heavy. I just okay then. I'm I'm I'm, a, I'm getting myself together on my question. Um, when I'm just curious, when is the last time that you did? <clears throat> oh, roll your eyes. okay. Don't roll your eyes. Just roll your eyes. <laughs> the silence. Yes. Talk heavy. Just, shit. Last time I auditioned. <laughs> last time that I checked. <laughs> it was for a Tom Cruise movie. And it maybe you know, I don't know how many years ago. I knew that after I came out of that audition that I would never audition again. Mm, speak on. And I told that to my to my agents. I said I'll never audition again. I'm trying to do the math on this. Do you remember this was in the '90s, the 2000s? Because that just means <laughs> that I just want to know how many people just called you and said, "I got a role. Let's go." Like that's yeah, just. It was, it was in the '90s. Wow. What made you, what made, what about that process made you uh, make that decision? Because I realized I knew who, I knew they knew who they wanted for the role. So I was going through an exercise that I didn't intend to go through anymore in my career at that time. I had, I had paid my dues. And uh, so it came a time for me to stand on that principle. And luckily it's turned out well. You know, and I have nothing against auditioning. You know, you should audition if you feel that that's what's going to help you get the role as a as an actor or actress. 
go for the audition. But after, but if it gets to a point where it's it sours what you're in this for, if it starts taking away any of the joy that you're doing this, then it's it's contaminating your process. Yeah. And you have to make a decision because then the joy and the fun is being taken out of. And that's what I got into this for. As you see, it just kept coming to me. So I wasn't in it for yeah. the money. Yeah. You know, I was in it because it was afforded to me and I found that I could do something that I ended up loving doing. What a blessing. So why subject myself to something that at that stage of the game was making it, was ruining the love affair? Mm. I refused to have them ruin the love affair. And so you were I'm already sure. 30 years in by then anyway. Yeah. So you you, you yeah. earned it. Yes. Yeah, Keith David, I've uh, read uh, uh, this piece with him a couple of years ago. He was saying something very similar to what you were saying in that he said, I don't sell myself. At this point in my career, I don't sell myself. I just present myself. Yeah, like is. at this point, you know what it is. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Know what you is. know if you're coming to me, yeah, if you're coming to me, you want me, and, and that's what it is. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I, I love and I respect the, I love and I respect the business. Like he said, I'm, I present myself. And I've got a track record, I feel, that speaks for myself. Okay. Big okay, so facts. let's jump into it. All right. Dr. War. <laughs> Why, y'all got a job for me? One of y'all got a job for me? <laughs> I'm, I'm scared you won't take it. I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm listen, looking at this thing, and I'm like, ain't no Spike Lee movies here. How many times he say no to people? I'm sorry. I just... <laughs> Go ahead, Mayor. I got Okay, questions. so, of, of course... As 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 uh, lovingly dubbed Doctor War because of your your rep for being a hard math uh, professor, a majority of our audience, of course, connects with you as Colonel Bradford Taylor on a different world. Um, I have to say that probably in quarantine, I've revisited that entire series and didn't realize how ahead of its time it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially with what we're dealing with now, like yeah. every... I went to a black college because of that, because of a different world. That I went we to, all I went, did, graduated yeah. from an HBCU. Yeah, like, facts. Yeah, and now we got a vice president that went to what? And that went to the best <laughs> one of the best <laughs> ones. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, love it. Yes, yes. probably because of you too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's right. Yeah, because of me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, in general, did you, I mean, at the time, did you see this as a, well, I guess nothing's revolutionary as you're, you're doing it, uh, when you're in the vacuum and it's only with perspective that you see how important it is. But at the time, like, what were your thoughts on a different world? Did you think that, wow, this is really historically significant or it was just a very good steady job or like, what were, what, what was the process? Well, all of that, you know, I, I came to find out that um, Susan Fails, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. team of Susan Fails and Debbie Allen was an unstoppable force. Mm. I had been in, enough, in the business enough and had been uh, in the world long enough to know 
to get a whiff of what revolution sounds like or smells like or looks like. So when I saw the scripts coming across the desk, scripts that dealt with, you know, AIDS or scripts that dealt with uh, uh, abuse or, uh, you know, scripts that dealt with some of the issues, you know, with the war, you know, these were scripts and stories that were revolutionary. And the revolutionary fact was from the top down, it was all black people. Except and for your first wife that we never saw. Right, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> oh, y'all, oh, y'all forgot that about different worlds. But even that was revolutionary. <laughs> right, exactly, and it was, and it was. Even that was revolutionary. And so I was, I was one of those who, who, who realized that that's what was taking place. And uh, my, my hat went off to the Cosbys mm -hmm. for taking that stance mm -hmm. and fighting those that were, you know, opposed to some of the positions that we were talking about, some of the things we were talking about, you know, and keeping us never less than number five in the ratings for seven years. Is Without there any of the kudos that usually goes with that kind of... Uh, uh, sustainability and that kind of uh, um, you know stewardship. We got none of the, we got none of those kudos. I don't know. I I feel that people are slowly rediscovering it now that it's on Amazon. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, I feel as though that people are rediscovering that that series um, in a different way and sort of under a different lens than when it was previously on. 30 years ago, definitely with how they handled subjects. Like there were some episodes I didn't even remember them covering. Yeah. Like the Freddie episode, the, the, uh, like oh, the, the, which shot the date rate, the Shaza. Was it, was that, what, no, that was one with, well, no, no, oh, where uh, uh, time act, the date rape one. Yeah. The first one of the first season when Dwayne. Oh, that one. Dating. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I was going to ask him what his favorite did. Was there a favorite uh, storyline for your for your character for Colonel Taylor? For Colonel Taylor, I love the one that Blair Underwood and I did. Oh, when he had to go that to was real. Uh, when he was the golf. golf war, mm -hmm. and when he came to to Colonel Taylor to ask to let him know that he was afraid, you know, going into war. You know, I thought that that was so powerful. Uh, what that whole thing was about, it was so. It was it was the essence of patriot. You know, we we do, as a black people don't think in terms of being patriotic. We don't think we're patriotic because no one else looks at us as patriotic. But we're very patriotic yeah. uh, as a people. We were and, part of every fight they let us be in. Huh? I said we were a part of every battle they let us every, be in. Every battle, yeah. every battle from the very first gunshot from the revolution from the uh, uh, revolutionary war. Don't look at ourselves that way, and uh, so we're always clamoring to be uh, thought of as that, and uh, all the evidence points to everything otherwise. Mm -hmm. And this was a wonderful, wonderful expose of uh, a disenfranchised people doing what was patriotic, yeah. and it was right during the war. I mean, the war was going, the war, the yeah. war was going on right at that time. It gave us a perspective on TV we never get to see. We don't, like you said, we don't see us in right. it and how we're thinking and stuff. That right. was how we're thinking about it. 
So it, it was wonderful, you know, and, and the show was just a, a fantastic show. Mr. Turner, I want to ask you about your time, um, the time with Aretha when you guys were together. Y'all were like the first Instagram couple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, I was thinking the same thing. They, yeah, they were. Y'all were like. I could ask that question. Oh, like yeah, the I remember first couple essence, that essence spread with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My mom e- had Ebony that. Jet. Ebony Jet. Ebony Jet. Y'all was in, they stayed in the jet now. Yes. What? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was that period in your life like, man? What, what was it like? Well, when it was good, it was the very best of times. Mm. You know, it was the very best of times. We remained friends for all those years, 35 years after we were married. Yeah. Uh, so we had a wonderful, wonderful relationship. And it was some points that was just unbelievable. You know, some things you can't, you can't really, you can't really even imagine. You know, there's some, some, some directions your life takes and you really have to some, sometimes step outside yourself and say, what, how did, what am I doing here? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that right now. <laughs> it had to be good because I noticed in your filmography, those are the years that you took a break. Like you was just like, I'm a. Well, no, out. because no, there were tough that, that in the, that, you know, there were tough times. Okay. There were okay. tough times. Not that uh, we had the option to take a break. You have to remember that disco came on the scene at that time as well. So all of the soul singers were in dire straits as well because uh, yeah, they were struggling. Uh, yeah, they were struggling. It was a struggling time. It was, just, it was a paradigm shift in the whole music uh, uh, world as well as um, the, the black exploitation movies were trying to be replaced. I was at an age where I was coming out of a young man and now into a leading man area, mm. you know? So there was a struggle in that aspect, which all actors go through if they're in the game long enough and start young enough, you know? Ooh. So I'm not in a business where you take a break. <laughs> Obviously, no, you don't take a yeah. break. Now nah, we, you don't take a break. The the business takes a break from you. From you, right? <laughs> Man, so, what do you think? I watched you and your, uh, you and your your current wife on uh, on Black Love, and I really oh, hey, love your like, interview. Yes, yes, and right. Yeah, say <laughs> now nah, that was a beautiful interview. What do you think you learned from from you know from the marriage with Aretha, and then just you know other marriage? What were you think some of the key lessons you learned in those early marriages that prepared you for your current marriage with your wife now? That one of the key ingredients to a relationship is liking the person that you're in a relationship with. Ding, ding, ding. If, if 2020 ain't taught us that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't yeah, be right. in the house with somebody right. you don't like. Yeah, you can't be locked up in this 2020 situation with somebody you don't like. No, I think that that's what over the years that I've learned out of three marriages is that liking the person makes it is a key ingredient. Uh, So, you know, I like this person that I'm with here, you know, Mm. and um, we build on that. Well, since he mentioned that he hasn't been auditioning since the 90s, this just changed my way of thought totally since you totally pick out what, what you want to do. So before Bill gets, y'all, we get to the wire questions, I just got to know the role, <laughs> House of Lies, Don Cheadle's daddy, 
Just tell yes. me. That's a little yes. later. <laughs> I know it came later, but you've taken too long to get to the wire. So I just got to know why, how, why did you decide <laughs> that that was a role for you? And what was it about the role that made you go, oh yeah, I'm a, I want to do that? Very simple. Don Cheadle said, I want Glenn Turman to play my daddy. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, he, you are his daddy. I feel like in, in an acting sense. <laughs> Wasn't a hard choice at all. You oh. know, I love yeah. John. I'm a fan of his work. That at this stage in the game, there are young people saying that they want Glenn Turman to be a part of their show. I'm flattered and honored, and uh, so I brought it. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. All right, so let's talk about The Wire. <laughs> yes, indeed. Major Royce. Mayor, Mayor Royce, sir, I would like to say that... that talk to me about... I, I donated to your campaign, Mayor Royce. I did, real, too. Real I do. I've never worked for Baltimore. Yeah, you don't mess with no Mayor Royce. I don't believe man one of you. I didn't. I didn't mess with no Mayor Royce. <laughs> I think, other than being a, a fascinating character, what is it like coming into a pre-existing series way like a few seasons few seasons into it in a particular series like that where every season changes but doesn't change you know but has a different plot line and and making an impact because mayor royce was a super impactful character even though it was many seasons into the thing and all of these characters had already been established and then all of a sudden you come along and and you have an impact as well what was the what was that process like that was a very actory question it sounded like an actor i'm not an actor but that was a real actory question there you go all right David Simon is a genius. 
the producer of The Wire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 we know. And he's got such insight into his characters. He knows all of his characters, inside and out. I had a conversation with him. He was he was wonderful in the in the way he cared for the the characters that 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 uh, he was pointing out to me and how he got there and what he thought about Mayor Royce uh, that it was actually the mayor that was the mayor at the time uh, in in Baltimore and that I was playing actually him to give you an idea of how precise. David Simon is. I came to that show while doing another show, a motion picture. I was doing a motion picture in Morocco, and uh, it was one with uh, Penelope Cruz and uh, Sahara. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Matthew McConaughey. Mm -hmm. And during a break in that filming, I booked The Wire. But in that filming, I had a goatee. And so the first day of shooting, the director's saying, well, Glenn, we need you to shave your, your goatee. I said, I can't because I have to go back and finish this motion picture that I'm doing, the Sahara, and they've got first, first dibs on me. First so I've got, dibs, to, yeah. I've got to do, you know, look the way I've looked in that show. On the spot, Simon says, okay, tell you what, next season, there's going to be an election runoff, a big election with a younger guy. Ah, I know where you're going. I, yes, with, with yes, a, With a yes. younger character, uh, Carsetti. We gotta give him a yeah. game face on. But. <laughs> <laughs> into the script that because he's younger and you're trying to look younger with, with the, uh, with the, for the, for your constituents, uh -huh. shave off your, 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 yes. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did. But he saw that on the spot a year wow. before it happened. Wow. He's the year. Yeah. Wow. You wow. feel me? That's yeah. so crazy. I mean, he solved that just like that on the spot. That's how I had, that's how telescopic, his vision is, you know? So how do you not be a part of somebody who's leading the charge like that? You wanna be a part of something like that. Wait, I got a question along those lines. Like, like what's the difference between a script that's super specific, clearly like one that's like a David Simon one versus one that's not, versus one where, where the actor's asked to put way more into it versus just reading what's on the page or just responding to what's on the page? Is there a, how do you, how do you do you favor scripts that go one way or the other, or how do you react to each of them? With The Wire, now you have to understand, actors are the vainest people in the world. No, no, I know that. They're most of my friends. <laughs> oh, <are> they? They? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but you also know that when actors get scripts, the first thing they do is thumb through it to get to their part. Yeah. Highlight. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> my line, my line, bullshit. My, my line, line. My, my, my line, my line, my line. With every script of The Wire, I read every script from beginning to wow. end, whether I was in it or not, because it was like reading a book. That's your difference. Have you kept all of your scripts, uh, or are you? Do you have to give them all back? Uh, yeah, I've got I've got them here in my office from The uh, Wire. Yeah, uh, uh, okay. a lot of them. Do you find that The Wire is the the 
I think for black people, it's still for black people of a certain age, it's coolly high. But do you are you shocked at the amount of white people that love The Wire as much? <laughs> well, I don't know what you're talking about. Is that your day, big white people show? No, day, I'll go if I go into to uh, to uh, office. Uh, to talk about a script with the producers or whoever, the directors, we'll zoom through what we're there to talk about. Mm-hmm. And then the first question after that is, so tell me about The Wire. The Wire. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm there, for another, I'm there for another half an hour answering questions like you just asked me, brother. You know, like wow. Stel uh, just asked. And we go into The Wire. And that's black, white, or anything. It doesn't matter. That's the way that's been. I was going to say, you, can you predict, depending on what situation you're in, who's going to come up to you and ask you which character? Like, I'm in the grocery store, so I know, you know. <laughs> it's going it's gonna to be... I know the con- conversation is going to be about Omar, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember the day, uh, if, if you can remember what you could tell us, the day of you shot the, the scene where... You're caught in an uncompromising position, a uh, rather <laughs> compromising position <laughs> in the office. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plead the fifth, man, Royce. Plead the fifth, man, Royce. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Boy, the Royce was a savage. He was. <laughs> Yo. I mean, so uh, no, no, man, that was like a great role. I think that just spoke to so many for me in particular. It it spoke to me seeing you in that role because up until that time, uh, you know, I had only seen you in, you know, kind of, I guess, what you consider good guy roles like Colonel Taylor. That was a great role. Dignified, but dignified. Yeah, Yeah, it was very dignified. But, you know, in The Wire, that was just somebody you were so conflicted. You know what I'm saying? It's like he wasn't just a, a straight good guy. But you know he wasn't a bad guy. Like he just had like he all these shades. In he was a politician. Right. He was a politician in every sense of the word. Like when the, the, my favorite scene, you know, you uh, when they were um, when Bunny Colvin, they find out that you know that what he's been doing with Amsterdam, and and everyone is Amsterdam. in the office and they just everybody talking shit. Everybody's raising hell, and the mayor's just sitting back and you just looking at the numbers like. 15 percent huh like you know what I mean? <laughs> that's that's all he cares about he like what was interesting about that was like i said i got to meet the mayor god i can't remember his name right I, now that was uh, me. who was the mayor at that time and he was actually in that scene so uh but he what i asked him about that the whole incident with the legalizing uh that, that district for uh for the drugs. And he said, I made a horrible mistake. I said, what was that? He says, I framed that whole thing as a drug zone. And I should have framed it as a, as a, uh, a medical epidemic. Uh, okay. Kurt Smoke. Huh? Kurt, Kurt Smoke. Smoke right, right. Smoke. You got it. You got yep. it. You got it. Yep. Uh, uh, Smoke said, I should have framed the whole thing as a as a medical problem. If I had used it as a medical problem, I would have been able to get away with it. I, w- I want to know if, um, you know, because of the critical claim that the show had and the fact that it just completely got snubbed during the Emmys, 
did you guys ever feel a certain way about that? Here come Miss Joanne. Yeah, that's Miss Joanne. She's been asking Hi, about you. you What's up, Miss Joanne? What up? Hey, hey, hey. We love you on Black Love. Love seeing oh. y'all. <laughs> <laughs> So pretty. All oh, right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Have fun. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Now, I was saying that the fact that the show was so critically acclaimed and so well loved, were, were you guys at all disappointed that you, you know, you, I wouldn't say blackballing, but the fact that the Emmys refused to recognize you guys as the powerhouse that you were, as far as the Emmys were concerned with The Wire? Yeah, I, I I never understood that. It was other than that, there was like twenty six black major players on this show. You know that had never happened before. Wow! But they just would not give the propers. They would not give the propers, and I don't know why. Well, speaking of which, your your, your role as um, in How to Get Away with Murder, um, you were nominated this year for yeah. Um, an Emmy. What did, what did that feel like? Like was is that important to you at all to to get recognized by your peers or? Sure, sure, absolutely, a- absolutely. That's important. I don't take that for granted at all. You know, uh, I've been blessed to have been uh, the recipient of several wonderful awards. You know, Emmy being a being a crown jewel, so to speak. You know, the one that I won, the one that I'm nom- was nominated for. Uh, mm-hmm. So no, I, I don't. You know, when you, your peers uh, hold you up like that, you know, that's that's something as a, as a young actor, as a kid, you know, you're looking in the mirror and you're practicing your acceptance speeches, you know, that that's all, that's real, you know. So then all of a sudden, there it is for real. And it's like, you get up there and you're like tongue-tied, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. And nervous. And I thought about, uh, like, JD's Revenge. It, it made me think. Have you and Luke Gossett, did y'all ever work together again after that? Uh, we worked, you know, Lou, the first time Lou and I worked together was in Raising in the Sun. Ah, right. Gotcha. Yeah, because okay. he was he was uh, one of the characters in the Raising in the Sun. So I've known Lou. He's been a big brother of mine since I was 12 years old. So then again, we did the River Niger with uh sissy <laughs> niger, the river niger 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 which is a country <laughs> in africa and a river yes yeah. oh really okay thank you with, uh, everybody don't know um with uh, james earl jones and cicely tyson of i'm course. gonna put that on my watch list <laughs> and then we did uh um uh, uh jd's revenge uh after that and we've been you know he's always been a big brother kind of figure for me who who is your who's your your starting five your your inner circle like besides Ben Vereen like do you have a circle of peers that you're tight with it we've got a road dog a road dog crew <laughs> like blackish <laughs> I said like blackish yeah 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 right right yeah we got a road dog crew that. Um, we we uh, we all stay in touch. Even through this pandemic, we talk every Sunday, you know. And uh, some you'd know, and some you wouldn't. Maybe not necessarily know. Although most you who's probably, the crew? So who who who's who's the crew? Well, oh gosh, I, I don't want to go into it for for fear I leave somebody out. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay. You know they not listening. <laughs> 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 Okay, we'll we'll let you slide on that. 
Hey, I have a question. Um, uh, Sugar Steve here. Hey, Steve. Hi. Um, you were in uh, Gremlins, which nobody yeah. brought up yet. Yes, that. you were. 1984. Yes, what, you were. What are your memories uh, of that? Was that a fun movie to be involved in? Gremlins was great to be uh, uh, involved wow. in. Because, Sugar, that was the first time that that kind of puppet was made for the screen. So the eyes rolling and everything, there were about five or six people underneath the table with a hole in the table for the cables and everything to go to the puppet for the uh, Mogwai and all of them to operate oh, the eyes and operate the ears and all that kind of stuff. So it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Now, then you cut forward to a movie I just did last year. It's, it's just come out. It's, uh, it's only been out maybe a year. Uh, Bumblebee is another Sp Steven Spielberg movie. Uh -huh. My second, I think it's my second Steven Spielberg movie. And the technology has changed so much. Now we're doing giants, right? Big, big uh, mm -hmm. those Bumblebee, those... Uh, those robots, you know, those big robots that change into cars and change into this and change into that. Oh, oh Transformers. 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 They're gigantic, right? But they're really just, for eyeline for the actor, a, a tennis ball on the end of a tall stick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's all you're looking at. And it's up in the air and you're acting to this thing. Uh. And then they put all of it together in post. Mm -hmm. But when we did uh, the Gremlins, those little gadgets were right there, you know. And right. you look at the table, there's six six dudes under there working some facet of the gadget, you know. So it, I said, "Wow," you know. I said, "What a what a change in times," you know. It was really interesting. It was really fascinating to be a part of that. You are wow. dope. And they're, they're still using puppets over at Sesame Street, Bill. I mean, what's going on with you guys? <laughs> old school, Stevie. Old school, Sugar. I don't know what to tell you. Old I have one more question. Um, what, what can you tell me about Honky, your first uh, movie from 1971? I was waiting for everyone. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I feel like Glenn was at first waiting for you to be specific on which one, but then he was, oh, the movie. <laughs> and now I'm just making a joke. I can't tell you much, man. I can't tell you. I can't tell you much. Sugar, that was a long time ago. I was just gonna ask you about um, you know, because we uh, were able to see a, a you know Ma Rainey's, and um, man, like your performance in that, like you know, yeah. was great. You know, yeah. what I'm saying just is everything, but um. You know, just your you with with Chadwick. I mean, you know that being his last film, man. What was that like? You know, and working, fighting, with, working with him and the last fighting. time. Yeah, Wasn't physically. This, yeah, for real. Yeah. And here's what you got to understand: all those fight scenes and tussling and him lifting me after after the end of that whole thing. We did that mm -hmm. maybe twenty times. Wow. wow. Oh, what was in it? Yeah, he was mad. I don't even want to use magic. That's just too trivial. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't know. Because, and I was as dead weight as I could be. Mm. And he was literally holding me up and picking me up. And we did several different takes, several different angles, several different moments. And he just went for it every single time. And we had no idea that he was sick. I just kept saying to myself, damn, this is a, 
is strong. You know, <laughs> and wow. he was, he was just strong, strong willed, you know, he willed himself to do all of that. So I just, I miss him already. You know, he was wonderful. We had a great, great time. He had a great sense of humor. I used to tease him and, and Simone, his wife, when I first, he first introduced me to her, you know, they were such a cute couple. And uh, so I had a great time with them. And, uh, and his work ethic was just, it reminded me of me back in the day, you know. I was going to say, not for nothing, it, it's so eerie to me that in looking back at his filmography, that it seems like he was very purposeful in the roles and the projects that he chose and was a part of, and especially in the sense of his commitment to his people. And it just made me think of you as well as how you became very purposeful in your roles. And I was curious if y'all had a conversation between the two of you guys about that. No, he was a Cooley, big Cooley High fan, you know. Okay. And so he wanted to know a lot of questions about Cooley High, but um, he was just a, he was just a d- dedicated performer, you know. Do you have a lot of the um, the younger guys like coming to you for advice, like like young black actors? Are you because you seem very much kind of just you know OG in the game? Do you have the people you know the younger actors come just yeah, you know, yeah, game or whatever? Yeah, that that happens quite a bit. That happens quite really? a bit. You know, I try to try to feed the you know, I, I was lucky. I had the James Earl Joneses or the Sydney Portiers who I could always call, you know, and go to. Wow. And, uh, you know, so I, I tried to reciprocate that same spirit. What were some of the biggest lessons you learned from James and uh, Sydney? Mm-hmm. When I told, I ran into Sydney Portier, I was, I was a struggling actor. We had done a Raising in the Sun, and now I'm, I've graduated high school. I'm about 19 years old. I'm struggling, trying to get a next job, you know, trying to find a job. Nothing's happening. I'm going uptown. I was a truck driver in New York. I'm taking a load of, of, of uh, furniture uptown. And I see Sydney coming out of, a, out of a restaurant on 7th Avenue in the 50s. And uh, I immediately say, oh, my God, Sydney. And I pull over, you know, and I got all this furniture and everything, this big ass truck, you know, over in them, and I pull it over and I jump out and I'm all dirty and grimy. I've been lifting furniture all day and he comes out and he's all clean and sharp and everything, you know. He's styling, <laughs> coming out of there, going to restaurants, you know. And I said, Jimmy, it's, 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 it's Glenn. And he kind of looked, Glenn, remember uh, Travis from Raising in the Sun? Oh, how are you? I said, uh, <laughs> spot on. I said, uh, fine, fine. I said, fine, fine. I said, man, I'm, I'm, you know, I graduated performing arts high school. You know, I'm trying to do my thing. You know, I'm just you know, driving the truck right now. I'm, I'm, I'm auditioning and blah blah blah. I said, what can you tell me about the biz, man? What, what do I need to know? He said, study math. once again all the way back to math right yes i said what you suck at (laughs) (laughs) right study math (laughs) yeah yeah right right study math yeah yeah i got that i got that you know i and he took off, you know, down the street, and he's gone. He's wispy, like disappears, you know. And I'm like, study math, study, what the, is he talking about study math? 
study math. Ain't that some shit? Study math. <laughs> 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 and I drive off. You just don't want to tell me. Well, this is a business. It's called show yeah. Yeah. business. Count your paper. Count yes. your wow. paper. Mm. I see. I That's love it. That's it. So wait, before we close, um, you know, as I mentioned, you're you're dropping us with a twofer. Of course, my rainy being one of them, but um Fargo's on your work Fargo. on Fargo. Oh, much respect, Dr. Senator. Much Dr. Respect. Senator. May he forever rest. Which which hopefully mm-hmm. we'll be sending you back to the Emmys next year. Um from your lips from to Say it again. No, no, it's 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 I, I already see it happen. I'm 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 putting it out there. Um yeah, just in in the fact that they're telling a black storyline, like no one was more shocked than I was. So how how did this come to be? How how did this come to fruition? I picked up the phone and ran and rang. My agent said, We've got an offer for you to do a Fargo. I said, Send me the script. Wow. And uh, they sent me the script. And I said, I'm in. Right. You know? Were you familiar with the series at I all before you? I was familiar with the movie, and uh, I'd watch yeah. an episode here and an episode there, but not really a, a into it, you know. Mm-hmm. But once I, I, I signed on, you know, I, I got all of the episodes and binged, binge-watched all of them. When I got there, I met met Noah Hawley, who's a brilliant young man. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just, you know, he and I just talked. I loved what he was saying. I loved what he was talking about in terms of... Uh, and it was not deep. Everything was really rather rather simple. But okay. um, he he obviously to give you an idea of how his mind works in terms of details. Just I just watched this last episode, you know, and I'm dead and gone, but I'm still mm-hmm. watching. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, he had a thing in there where he said, "I'm paraphrasing now," but one of the one of the black characters says, "I don't think it was Chris." Something about I got to get out of here and I'm going to go get some greens. Now that's a mm-hmm. that's that's a white guy right in there. Oh no! Right, he got them laying in bed with their scarves on their head. Like his deep scar- attention to detail <laughs> yeah, yeah, is, yeah. you know. So he's he's so in tune to, yeah. to the nuances. It's about the nuances of his scripts and his characters. It's the nuances that make that make the the the, the, the characters so interesting. You know, and yeah. he, he's he's brilliant at that. You know, and it, those are what's so fun to play. So, Doctor Sinister's nuances were were just uh, so much fun. So, but answer this question, Glenn. Well, In the beginning of Fargo, it says this is true. Some yeah. of the names have been changed, but please, <laughs> can you please tell me is any of this true? Did a black man create the credit card? Come on. Good night. What? Good night. It's been a pleasure. Before you go, can I just say, how poetic does it feel that you started out in Raising in the Sun with Lorraine and you you now brought, uh, I was, uh, you, uh, August Wilson's second, like his second play to the film, to film. Like, what does that yeah. feel like? Is Act it- like I said that really nice. <laughs> and articulate yeah it feels great it feels great well, man, well done it, it just it just feels great uh, it just, and it's you know it's also great what to be here with you guys to see you guys doing your thing 
all of you together doing your thing, asking great well, questions. You. Got to got your own thing going on. I, I love seeing this. You have to understand that it wasn't always like this. Hmm. So you guys are real. You guys are my heroes. So keep we stand on, on your shoulders, sir. Right. Thank you. A hundred percent stand on yeah. your shoulders. Questlove Supreme. We are heroes. <laughs> well, Mr. Sherman, <laughs> we 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 thank you very much uh, for sharing your stories and 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 your creativity uh, and, and and thank you for always making us look good man for yeah. real for yes yeah like, like for real yes, hey, we appreciate that yeah so on behalf of uh sugar steve i'm p bill fontigalo and laia this is quest love signing off from quest love supreme the great glenn turman definitely see my rainy's black uh it's not yes. nasty. I, I well, know this. it is nasty though. It is. I had a momentary lapse of reasons. Yes. And also, yes, Mom Rainey's Black Bottom. Definitely must see. And uh yeah, support him in Fargo. And yeah, we I'm calling it now. This yeah, it's 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 in me time for this entire season yes, of Fargo. Yes. I'm calling it right now. The great Glenn Turman, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. This is Quest Love Supreme signing off. Hey, this is Sugar Steve. Make sure you keep up with us on Instagram at QLS and let us know what you think and who should be next to sit down with us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024 Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years and I really like it with Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.